Good morning, everybody. Thank you for coming out on this smoky morning to be here at Spirit Rock with Jack. My name is Romy, and I am running this event with many of my fabulous co-workers who are here today. Christina, in particular, is here. Um, we also have many volunteers that came early this morning to set up the room. They're all wearing name tags, so if you have any questions or would like to thank them, they're easily identifiable. So today I wanted to let you know that we're live streaming and we have some documentary filmmakers in the room. So if you ask questions, please wait for the mic and place it close to your mouth so we can hear you at home and in the room. And speaking of hearing, we have assisted hearing devices. If you are having a hard time hearing me, they're right in the back. There's my coworker, Jesse, and he can hand you one. They They work very well. Uh, oh, I'm going to remind you to turn off your cell phones now while I'm thinking of it. And we have a bookstore. <laughs> I don't know why I thought of that next, but there is a bookstore and we have volunteers there today. So please feel free to peruse. We also have Jack's new book. No, <clears throat> pardon me. No time like the present in the bookstore. Um, lunch. Normally, I encourage you to go outside to the beautiful outdoors. We have picnic benches in the meadow across the way. However, today we're going to set up tables and chairs inside and upstairs in the East Hall so you can stay inside if you don't want to go outside. If you forgot your lunch today, Woodacre Deli is across the road. I can give you directions. CEs, continuing education, there's almost 20 of you in here, but not 20 people have signed up. So if you paid for CEs or if you would like continuing education credit, please stand up right now and sign up outside if you haven't signed up already. We will be ringing a bell when it's time to come in. So if you hear that, uh, we're the only ones in the building today, which is lovely. And there is an upper retreat at the upper retreat area, and it's silent up there. So I'm going to ask you if you are walking outside and you get to the uh, wood gates to please turn around. Uh, that is where we're having a silent retreat. So now I'd like to introduce Jack Cornfield. Thank you, Jack. Without Thank you, none of us would be here today or watching at home or being part of a documentary, quite honestly. I know you were just in China, so I'm so glad you're back, and I hope to hear a little bit about your travel. Thank you. Could I have that book? Maybe there's something good in it. Who knows? <clears throat> Thank you, Romy. So good morning to you all. I'm very happy to be here. And the teaching today is one that I um, really enjoy doing. Um, I've done this teaching about the essence of Buddhist psychology over a number of years, Um, and it's a very satisfying and, I I hope, um, useful set of teachings for you. There'll be a few guided meditations, but not much walking meditation, which we would normally have, partly because of the fire and so forth, and maybe we'll also have a little shorter lunch period just to kind of keep what we're doing contained. Before I start, other than the documentary filmmakers and their 
said they want to make movies of me before I die, which might be soon, but I think I'm a little longer. Um, you know, in your 70s, you, know, you never know. Um, actually, you never know, period. And the teaching of the one of the great Buddhist sutras says that karma can change as quick as the swish of a horse's tail. And um, if one doesn't believe that, all you have to do is drive up the road to Sonoma and Napa, where these lives were going, toodling along, just like everything's fine, the grape harvest, and, the, and then everything transformed. And we know this, actually. Um, so in part, the teachings today are, are also focused on how is it that we can live amidst the ever-changing world that is the, the reality, the impermanence, and really the, the tentativeness of life. Is there some way to conduct ourselves and to live um, with a spirit that can allow all these changes and um, stay wise, compassionate, centered amidst them all? Before I go any further, it would help me to know a little bit more about you. How many of you are here at Spirit Rock for the first time? Great, welcome. Um, the ones who've been here a lot, um, you will hear some familiar stories, some of my favorite stories. You can think of them as bedtime stories. Oh yeah, read that one again, right? <clears throat> so you can enjoy them. How many of you are in the helping professions? Uh-huh, and the other half are your clients that you brought along probably <laughs> to help get them some assistance. Um, all right, educators? Yay, wonderful. Happy to have that. Um, business people? Great. Artists? Wonderful. Scientists? Not, not as many as we'd like. Um, vets? How many vets do we have? Hmm. Okay. Politicians. Damn, we're striking out here. Okay. Um, and how many have been on a residential retreat here? Just to know. Wonderful. Yeah. So the focus today... <clears throat> on Buddhist psychology starts with the fundamental understanding that Buddhist teachings are a science of mind. They're not so... Yes, they've been used as a religion and as a philosophy, but if you read the original texts and look um, deeply at them, um, they point to the way the mind and the heart operate in this mysterious human incarnation and ways that we can learn to understand ourselves, our relationship with others, um, that bring inner freedom, well-being, happiness, and so forth. Um, and the other thing that's interesting <clears throat> and critical about them is that they're practical. And so you'll hear as we go through the teachings today um, that they are experiential um, and that there are trainings and practices that are given that allow us to both learn and to, to transform our lives. We come to a temple like this and we sit in the midst of the 
mystery of human incarnation. Um, And often we go through our days kind of taking life for granted. (coughs) Excuse me. But something greater and vaster is happening all around us all the time. And this week I've been sitting with a friend who got a diagnosis of a very advanced cancer hmm, 10 days ago and has about another week to live. Um, And uh, of course she is shocked and all the other kinds of things. Um, And part of it was I didn't think it would happen so quickly. Um, But it can. Um, What is this human incarnation? When we look at our lives, um, we can either live with habit and kind of go along in a somewhat automatic way, or we can discover the possibilities of healing, well-being, inner freedom amidst all the changes of the world, and a way to hold both the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows that make up human life. Mm. I think about the mystery of it. My sister-in-law, Esther, who died about a decade ago, um, I was with her quite a lot um, uh, during the last stages of her cancer. Um, And then I stayed home here, came back one night, and she was very close to dying. Got up early to rush into the city to be with her. Um, but I had to stop at the drugstore to pick up some prescriptions. Did it kind of hurriedly, and I was standing in line a little bit impatiently at CVS. And all of a sudden, my whole body just relaxed. And I said, oh, Esther died. And I got to my car, and I called my brother, and I said... Um, how's Esther doing? And he said, oh, she died five minutes ago. And I said, I know. Now, if I were to ask, how many other people have had experiences like that? You know, a third of the hands go up. Who are we? How is this possible that we can know something at a distance? Um, are we our bodies? Are we our feelings? Are we consciousness itself that's connected in this web of life? I mean, who got born into your body? And then how do you navigate? These are kind of the fundamental questions and the kind of questions that one is asked when you come to a temple or a place of deep reflection. Also, I have a poem to start with. Poetry is always good because it's kind of the music of language. <clears throat> called the sleepless ones. What if all the people who could not sleep at two or three or four in the morning left their houses and went to the parks? What if hundreds, thousands, millions went in their solitude like a stream and each told their story? What if there were old women fearful if they slept they would die and young women unable to conceive? and husbands having affairs, and children who couldn't sleep because they were fearful of failing. 
and mothers worried about paying the bills and women having business troubles and men unlucky in love and those that were in physical pain and those who were guilty. What if they all left their houses like a stream and the moon illuminated their way and they came, each one, to tell their stories? Would these be the more troubled of humanity? Or would these be the more passionate of this world? Or those who need to create, to live? Or would these be the lonely ones? And I ask you, if they all came to the parks at night and told their stories, would the sun on rising be more radiant? And again, I ask you, would they embrace? And this is us. We all have the arc of our lives and the stories that we tell inwardly and to one another. And to begin to pay attention with the capacity of mindfulness and understanding to the stories that we're living out um, is one of the essential elements of Buddhist psychology and to see that we share the common elements of the story with so many others. And that wherever you are in the story, if you go out into the park, you can find those who found a kind of freedom amidst the difficulties and the glories of their life. And I think about um, a nun that I met on the northern border of Burma in China um, who had been diagnosed with a very difficult and rare illness um, and given the state of the medical care in Burma did not want to have surgery. Um, the hospitals at that time were um, not sterile necessarily and it just wasn't the kind of medical care that you would want to have surgery. Um, so she went to see her old aunt who was a Buddhist nun and she said, you come live in the forest and I'll teach you healing and give you these herbs. Um, but you have to meditate to heal yourself. This is a you know, pretty dire situation. And so she did. And she spent two years doing this healing practice. And we met her shortly, well, not sometime after she had um, come back. And she'd started a monastery because people wanted to know what she'd learned. She was this very bright spirit. Um, and we asked about her practice and she said, yes, um, my aunt made me sit and meditate 16 to 18 hours a day for the last two years along with these herbs and my body's completely healed and cleared now. Um, and so I've opened this temple, particularly for women who are in distress, um, those with mental illness, those who are homeless, those who are with trauma, who are fleeing the... Um, civil wars around uh, the northern Burma. And I teach them all to meditate. And I thought to myself, I wouldn't necessarily um, ha- invite people with mental illness, the homeless, and the um, you know people with severe trauma, and say, oh, come and let's sit in meditation. And then she said, come in. And there was a meditation hall. And it was filled with 100 or 150 women who were all sitting like statues. And what it was is that the, this nun, this, this youngish woman who'd gone through this, had found a spirit that was so strong in herself 
that you came to see her. She had suffered very deeply with the illness and all of this and said, you know, I'm homeless, I'm mentally ill or whatever. And she would look you in the eyes and say, you can do this. And it was like her spirit was stronger than their problems. It was really kind of extraordinary. And when we were walking out, I was there with my beloved Trudy, my wife. An old woman, woman with just a couple of teeth came up and grabbed Trudy. Didn't speak much English. She'd obviously been through very, very hard times. She held Trudy's arm and then she looked at her and she pointed to herself and she said, peace of mind, peace of mind. And you could see that her life had been changed by being there. So this is really the beginning of Buddhist psychology to recognize um, that no matter what our circumstance, there's a possibility of inner freedom um, and of well-being no matter, again, whether it's the physical difficulties or the outer changes that, that um, come so often to us. And when we move through life lost in the small perspective, caught up in our fear, depression, anger, anxiety, suffering, and so forth, Buddhist psychology opens us to a wider and bigger training. And I think of Thupten Jimpa, who was here last year. He's the translator for the Dalai Lama, wonderful young Lama himself. And he helps run the sea care training at Stanford that he started, of, um, which has eight-week programs in compassion and mindfulness. And he tells the story of one doctor who went to through the training. He was in his 50s. He was a physician at Stanford. And he was depressed and burned out. The medical system is so hard. He was seeing so many patients um, and uh, so much stress. Uh, and he was just kind of finished uh, and undermined in some way by how demanding and difficult it was. And then he went through this eight-week training in compassion and mindfulness. And he found a way to come back to his, himself, to regulate himself, to see anew, so that when he went back to his medical practice, an old woman who'd been a patient for a long time came in and said, Doctor, you seem different today. What happened to you? Are you in love or something? You know? And he laughed because, of course, he was in love, but it was in love with life again in some very deep way. Now, Buddhist psychology um, is, in essence, a positive psychology, a psychology of human dignity and goodness, that we are not limited by our circumstance or our history. So when Nelson Mandela walked out of 27 years in Robben Island Prison with so much dignity and magnanimity and graciousness, and not only inspired South Africa, but really changed the imagination of the world, he showed that they can put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. And it begins with something Nelson said at one point. He said, it never hurts to see the good in someone. They often act the better because of it. And so all the trainings and the practices and so forth are to awaken us to what is called our fundamental dignity and our fundamental goodness. And this is really in contrast to Western psychology, where if you read from the Freudian beginnings, um, 
it's a medical model, and almost all the focus is on disease and pathology and healing people and get, getting better from your diagnosis. Um, and of course, there's the DSM manual, and you get diagnosed, and you get a number for your particular diagnosis. And it's all categorized, your particular disorder. I can see it in you, yes. Um, and it helps to the insurance industry to figure out how much to pay to get you better or something like that. I mean, that's become our mental health, along with um, this, which is a, it was a, a front page of one of the sections of the Wall Street Journal. And it says, so young and so many pills... Um, and it's more than almost a third of U.S. children, counting teens, um, take regular prescriptions such as ADHD meditation, medication, antidepressants, antipsychotics, and things like that. That that's how we're responding to our human situation. Um, there is another way. And it's not that there aren't appropriate times for medication you know, or that we don't need to organize our medical system. But there's something more than this. Um, and the ability to see in this way, um, to see the fundamental goodness and dignity of uh, a human being and to see that their trauma and their grief or their anxiety is not who they really are. It's a visitor. Um, it is extraordinarily healing. When the Dalai Lama takes your hand, which he does when he goes and teaches with different groups, and he likes to kind of go down and greet people. And um, the cool thing about it is that he doesn't let go. You're there, and the Dalai Lama comes, and if you're in the line or whatever, and I've taught with him and things, so I've had, a, had the fortune of a good time around him, and he is, he's quite wonderful presence. So he takes your hand, and you think, this is great. Dalai Lama looks in your eyes, blessing, nice, and very good vibrations. And then he doesn't let it go. And you think it's like the politician kissing the babies and moving down the row and seeing how many people... But it's not how it happens. He holds on until you really get it, that he's there with you. You know, and you go, oh, wow. And then, ah. And then he looks again at you. You, you know, we really connected. Old friends, okay. And only then does he move on to the next person. And there's something about the depth of that connection that is almost um, more powerful and healing than any other intervention we can have to be seen and met in that way. So there's a story that I love, a true story of a school teacher in Ohio, um, a high school teacher, and one day when the class was really rowdy, um, her math class, she stopped the study. No one was going to learn math. And she put the 31 names of all the students in the class on the blackboard, and she said, for the rest of the period, write these names down. And then put next to the names one good thing that you admire or like about this person. And then she collected all those papers. And then, you know, some months later, maybe before Easter vacation, when the class was really not focused, she stopped the class again. 
and she passed out the papers, she'd cut them apart and pasted on a page with each person's name at the top um, the different comments of good things that had been uh, written about them by the other 30 students. Uh, A couple of years later, she got a call from a woman who said, you know, Robert, who was in your class, I know he was one of your favorite students, my son, was in the military, and he was just killed in the Middle East. Very sad, and if you want to come, here's the memorial. So she went, and toward the end of the memorial, they were standing at graveside, and the mother said, I have to talk to you. She said, my son only carried a few things on the battlefield with him, and this is one. And she pulled out that page, and it had obviously been folded and unfolded many times of the 31 good things that people had seen about him. And then the woman standing next to them, the young woman who'd been a student, said, oh yeah, um, I always carry mine too, and pulled it out of her purse. And then another young man on the other side said, oh, I made it part of my wedding vows. There is something so remarkable about seeing what is called in the um, mystical tradition the secret beauty of another being to see in their eyes the you know the spirit that was born into them and to see that their goodness that has a very powerful transformative effect so now i invite you for a moment to reflect on this and then t- take a look around, not in a weird way. I mean, you're weird enough as you are um, without adding to it. But, but just imagine that you can see, you know, like the Dalai Lama. You're the kind of secretly the Dalai Lama or whoever it is. That you can just see the beauty and the dignity and the secret beauty of each face you look at. Just to look around a little bit. The seeds of goodness that were born into each person. And in what it's like to see people with these eyes. I read um, of a uh, chaplain, a hospital chaplain, um, who twice a year would go through the hospital and she would bless the hands of all the people that work there. And just hold their hands and bless them for their work. You know, of course, the surgeons and the physicians and the ICU nurses and so forth. She said, but it was equally important to go in the basement and find those people who were, you know, washing the dishes and the ones who went upstairs to mop the floors and clean the bathrooms who were often so unrecognized. And she would hold their hands and she said, it was so touching because after she did this a number of rounds, they would wait half a year for the day that she would come through and hold and bless their hands. And someone said, this was one of the most meaningful things that happened to me all year long that someone sees me and honors me and values me. So we, we need this in some way for our spirit or our soul. Now, 
The question is how to live in this way and how to awaken these capacities. It's not so easy in the modern world. Albert Einstein said, at least according to Scientific American, which is a reasonably authoritative source, he's said, if you can drive safely while kissing a girl, you're simply not giving the kiss the attention it deserves. Right? And our attention is split. We actually now have a new posture. We sort of gradually have learned to stand upright, you know, as human beings. But now I watch people walking down the street and their posture is kind of like this as they're looking at their smartphones, you know. Um, But there is something in what Einstein said about the capacity to pay attention where we are that changes everything. And the possibility of awakening, um, which is at the heart of um, Buddhist psychology, is offered in a wide range of trainings and tools, of trainings in mindfulness and training in forgiveness and training in loving kindness and compassion and training of attention to the body and to the stories that we tell um, and also connection to one another in deep ways. And a couple of years ago, I was uh, teaching at the first White House Buddhist leadership gathering, which I'm sorry to say I don't think is going to be happening again soon. (laughs) Just leave that aside. Um, Whatever your politics, you are welcome here. We really, really welcome. We want everybody to feel welcome here. But that doesn't seem to be the direction right now in the White House. Um, And it was one thing to talk about the principles of wise society, which there are in Buddhist teachings, because he met with kings and ministers and princes, and the society that respects each member and um, and uh, cares for the sick and the young and the elderly, those who are vulnerable, will prosper and not decline. And the society where people come together um, and listen to each other with uh, care um, and... Uh, uh, that, in, that protects the environment around them and so forth. These are universal principles you find in every great spiritual tradition. But the thing that was different that I could say after laying out that is that in the Buddhist teaching of the science of mind, there are ways to do it. It's not just that it's a lovely philosophy, but there are ways to train people to train our own hearts and minds so that um, these capacities grow in us. And we know it because um, now in 10,000 school systems and in thousands of hospitals and clinics, mindfulness-based intervention and social and emotional learning are happening and mindfulness in business and um, in the arts and even in athletics. You know, the Seattle Seahawks when they won their Super Bowl or... um, you know, the uh, Chicago Bulls and the L.A. Lakers had a, in, in all their championship years, had a meditation coach, a friend of mine, George Mumford. Um, and it helped a lot of them. Um, but this, my friend George said, Michael Jordan didn't really need that. He had his own way. But in general, um, it spread very, very widely because of the neuroscience that is showing this, these trainings and capacities which fit with neuroplasticity, which in the last few decades has been, was a revolution in neuroscience that thought, okay, the brain and the nervous system are set when you're young and that's it, and too bad. 
But as we now know, um, every way that we pay attention and the way that we use our own attentional capacity is rewiring our nervous system and our brain. Um, and if you read things like Norman Doidge, um, who's a great um, New York Times bestseller, The Brain That Heals Itself or Changes Itself, you start to see um, all the science of this neuroplasticity. Um, or you look at what Adam Ghazali at UCSF does um, in um, mental trainings and the results of it and the, the cover of Nature magazine on um, new capacities to change the brain. Um, or Justin Rhodes at University of Illinois who documents neurogenesis from mental training that new neurons are growing as well as new, new synaptic connections. And then there's the genetic level of it. So Elizabeth Blackburn, who won the Nobel Prize and who's here together with Alyssa Apple at the UC Medical Center, she won the Nobel Prize for telomeres, for the caps at the end of your chromosomes that protect them. And as they wear down, so too your physical well-being also diminishes until you die. And she showed, and it really boggled her mind, that after eight weeks of meditation, telomeres grew, you know, and that we have these capacities to change our, the, the epigenetics um, and the way that our genes are operating um, through our attention. The start is mindfulness, which I will call loving awareness, and you'll understand why as we go on. The capacity to be present where we are for our experience rather than just being wandering or spaced out in various ways. And so when I work as, as a therapist, or I have, I have my clients come in and we sit together to start. They don't have to be Buddhists, spare their friends and family, but we want them to be Buddhists. It's a much better kind of endeavor. Um, and we don't make, it's not like there's some special meditative thing. It's just to quiet down and pay attention to what's going on so that when we do start to work together, there's a sense of connection. Because otherwise people come in and somebody just cut them off on the highway and they had a little argument and, you know, work that morning and you get a kind of superficial connection. But in five minutes of being together and, and getting silent, there grows a capacity to connect from which all the deeper work can happen. And then I start to say, all right, you know, people will ask, how do I do this more? How do I learn? So begin to train in mindfulness. But it's not that easy. Um, people are not very embodied in our culture often. You know the line from James Joyce where he writes, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. So there's that kind of non-embodiedness. And then humorist and friend who lives in Fairfax, Annie Lamont, right? My, man, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone, you know. So you sit and meditate and you've got to find your body and then you look at your mind and go, oh dear, or whatever. Um, and so the first game in teaching mindfulness is to teach people how to be aware without judging and fixing and resisting and grasping and not make it a self-improvement project, but rather the ability just to become the loving witness of this human life, which changes everything. Because usually we're trying to fix it as 
the author Floridist Scott Maxwell writes, no matter how old a mother is, she looks to her middle-aged children for signs of improvement, right? And we've internalized that. Okay, now I'm going to meditate and I'm going to get better, whatever your idea of better is. And the game with mindfulness and the kind of fundamental or loving awareness training is to be spacious and gracious with what's actually true in your human life. And people don't tell us to do this very much. It's always like you got to fix yourself and get more and do more and have more, and that's our culture. So this is more like being. And we use images of sitting like a mountain with all the weather changes or, or resting like a butterfly on a flower, not changing the flower, but there, and beginning to sense the breath, your life breath, um, as it comes in and out as a way to connect the, the body and mind. And in doing so, the breath becomes a kind of a mirror. Mullah Nasruddin, the Sufi holy man and sage um, from the Middle East, um, went into the bank to cash a check one day, and they said, could you please identify yourself? So he reached in his pocket, pulled out a small mirror, and said, yep, that's me, all right. And what mindfulness begins to do as we start to train um, our attention to be quite present and begin often with this very universal and simple practice of being aware that your body is breathing is that the breath then becomes a kind of a mirror which as you feel the breath you notice the longing or the anxiety or the peacefulness or the or the you know, frustration or all the different states of the heart and mind. You notice the tension in the body. You begin to notice what's actually going on in a way that we often don't pay attention to. And without being aware, it's not possible to really live um, in a free way. We're otherwise just at the, in kind of reaction to what's, what's coming. And sometimes in working with the breath, there will be some phrases or words that are invited. You can say to yourself softly, calm or centered or ease with each breath, a kind of invitation to quiet the mind somewhat. Um, And as you sit, even in the beginning, you'll feel the body pains and tensions. They show themselves. Um, And we carry those in our physical body, trauma and so forth, it's all here. Or you'll notice the moods you have. Um, You start to sense the unfinished business of the heart. If there's grieving that, you know, there's been a loss and you've been so busy running around, you sit and maybe then the tears will come because you're finally paying attention, you know, or longing or um, all kinds of other experiences. And my, my friend Maladoma Somme, who's a West African shaman and medicine man, when he first came here from, from um, Burkina, the Dagara people, he had gone through this great shaman, shama, shaman's training, although he has a couple of PhDs, one from the Sorbonne and one in the U.S., but he's mostly a shaman. And he said, but I came out of the shaman's training and I walked through your streets and your streets are full of the ungrieved dead. And what he meant 
He said, I could somehow see the spirits, homeless people who died, people who died in ICUs, taken care of, you know, in, in caring ways by the nurses and the staff, but whose family wasn't there, people who died in old age homes and so forth. And he said, in our culture, um, we grieve and honor each person. Um, and that's a deliberate part of our, our Dagra people's way of moving through the world, that we celebrate each birth and we also celebrate the life at the end of it. And um, your culture has lost its attention to grief. And because of it, it still carries the grief in an unhealthy way. And so when you sit and you're quiet, the unfinished business of the heart starts to arise. And then you see the mind, cartoon in The New Yorker, which shows a car crossing the Utah desert with a sign, roadside sign that reads, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles, right? (laughs) And that's kind of meditation, the way it is, because you start to see your racing mind and all that it does. Um, And what you do in establishing loving awareness is to notice what's present without reacting to it. And you notice there's, um, you know, a racing mind or there's tears or there's longing or whatever experiences you have or tension. And almost as if to bow to it, you just acknowledge that this is the way that it is. It's like this right now. And you start to feel the experiences rise and fall like, the breath rises and fall, comes and goes, and you let these experiences rise and fall like waves of the ocean around the breath. And the research of people like Richie Davidson shows an increased capacity to approach challenges when you train mindfulness because these difficulties come, and what it is, the neuroscience language is, you expand the window of tolerance. Dan Siegel also uses that language, so that you're able to bear the tears or for some people, it's joy. Some people are so loyal to their suffering that um, it's scary to let themselves feel happy or well. And so by expanding the window of tolerance, you learn how to be present for life without so much judgment and contraction and fear and aversion. This is what makes up our human life. And that already starts to invite a kind of well-being and freedom. So let's do a little sitting little meditation together, maybe 10 minutes or something like that. Do you want to stand up and stretch for a moment? You've been sitting for a while. And when you're ready, let yourself sit back down. And many of you, probably most of you, have already an established mindfulness practice. But we'll just practice together for a little bit. This first training of loving awareness and bringing together the breath and body 
experience and the mind. So when you're ready, let your eyes close gently. And from the earliest teachings of the science of mind, there is a most wonderful way for human beings to establish clarity and well-being, to overcome the difficulties of suffering and grief, to find an inner freedom of heart and mind. And this is the establishment of mindfulness, of mindful awareness, this great human capacity. So you sit now and begin to let yourself notice um, the experiences of just being seated halfway between heaven and earth in this human form. And bring a kind attention, mindfulness as loving awareness, to simply notice the state of your body right now. And also notice what other moods might be present, the state of the heart. And the kind of thoughts that are arising and passing all without judgment, just noticing. With loving awareness, you become the witness to body and heart and mind. And then you notice how easily it is, how easy it is to drift off into thinking and remembering and analyzing. So to stay present, let yourself become aware of your body's breathing, this universal movement of breath. You can feel it as coolness in the nostrils or swirling tingling in the back of the throat or the rise and fall of chest or belly and if it's difficult to feel your breath 
you can put one hand on your belly and feel it rise and fall in the palm of your hand and just leave it there. And with each breath, invite a sense of calm or ease. And let the other experiences, sounds and feelings and thoughts, let them rise and fall like waves of the ocean around the breath. And just bring your attention gently back to this breath, again and again returning to it as a first step in training mindfulness. Come back to the breath each time the attention wanders quite gently, like training the puppy. Sit, stay, very kindly.
Notice the breath from the beginning through the middle to the end of the in-breath or rising. Notice if there's a space between breaths and you can just relax in that stillness. Notice the appearance of the out-breath or the falling of chest, belly. As you feel the whole rhythm of breath, invite a sense of steadiness, calm, or ease. This breath
Now it's easy in meditation and in this training to set a goal and then use it to evaluate yourself. And of course, to steady the mind or be able to concentrate a bit more on the breath through training becomes possible. But it has to happen in an organic way and not through your striving. It comes more when you simply are willing to pay attention to what's happening. And sometimes it will be the breath, but sometimes what you notice as you sit quietly is you're sleepy, right? Or you notice that you're concerned or worried about something, or you're restless, all of those kind of things. And those are absolutely natural. The image or story that may be helpful is of uh, Professor George Shaler, who was one of the most important primate biologists ever. He was the mentor to um, Diane Fossey, whose story was told in that movie, Gorillas in the Mist, um, played by Sigourney Weaver. And Dr. Shaler came back from one of his trips in Africa and made a presentation to a huge gathering conference of um, biologists, field biologists, and talked about the gorillas, how they lived together, what was the role of the young males, the big silverback males' relationship to the, to the females, um, who raised the children, the aunties and the, you know, the mothers, and all of the kind of family structure and community. And people raised their hand and they said, wait a second, Dr. Shaler, we've been studying these creatures for a couple of hundred years with our kind of European scientific view, um, and nobody ever had this level of information. How did you learn so much about the gorillas? And he said it was simple. I didn't carry a gun. The previous generations of biologists had all kind of been frightened by these giant creatures, and so they went in carrying elephant guns, basically. Now, if you were a gorilla, and you saw some guy coming in, you know, carrying a big gun, I mean, how would you feel, right? So they couldn't really get very close to them. But Shaler, because he didn't carry a gun, had to come in very respectfully and slowly, eyes downcast. There turns out, the primate biologist at uh, San Francisco Zoo taught me about, about how you approach gorillas. You kind of sidle in, keep your eyes down. If you want their attention, you clear your throat <clears throat> like that. And then they'll look up, you wanted something. I mean, it was very cool. We went to visit the gorillas in the zoo and her, 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 her gorilla people. But anyway, Shaler had to... Had to um, approach very slowly and carefully and respectfully. And the gorillas could feel it. And after a while, when they realized he wasn't going to harm them, they let him just sit there in the middle and he could take his notes and observe everything that they were doing um, and learn so much because he wasn't trying to do anything. He simply became the caring witness of their life. And in the same way, Mindfulness, you start with the breath, um, it is really an invitation to approach your own body and mind um, as a caring witness, which is partly why we're talking about it as a loving awareness. And then you notice, oh, sleepiness, that's not a failure. It's just your body's tired. 
You know, have you been running yourself around a lot or not sleeping much or, you know, whatever their causes for it, but you notice it or restlessness or anxiety or whatever. You simply sit in the middle of it all and allow yourself to be present for this. Um, And then the beautiful thing is you can't do it wrong because there's not something that's supposed to be happening. What is happening is the subject of your attention in the way that Chaler gave attention to see what was happening there among the gorillas. Your gorilla nature displays itself. Mm. So I was leading a seminar over at Berkeley, at the Berkeley Law School, um, on mindfulness and the law. One part of it, there had been a whole big gathering of uh, lawyers and judges and law professors and, and so forth. And one guy who was a judge said he'd been a meditator for quite a while. And when he was appointed to, you know, to sit on the bench, he said, hmm, sit on the bench. I know how to sit. So it sort of, he connected the two. And this is his instructions to the juries. I want you to listen to what will be presented in this courtroom with total attention. You may find it helpful to sit in a posture that embodies dignity and presence and to stay in touch with the feeling of your breath coming in and out as you listen to the evidence. Be aware of the tendency of mind to jump to conclusions before all the evidence has been presented and the final arguments made. As best you can, suspend judgment and simply witness with your full being what's being presented in the courtroom moment to moment. If you find your attention wandering, you can always bring it back to your breathing and to what you're hearing over and over again if necessary. When the presentation of evidence is complete, it will then be your turn to deliberate deliberate together as a jury and come to a decision, but not before. That's the kind of jury I want when they uh, call me into court, you know. But you can hear the spirit of mindfulness, which is very different than the way we tend to approach other things in our life. And the invitation of it is really to learn, to discover. And there's a kind of freedom in it. Now, as we go on, it turns out that mindfulness has to be married to compassion and loving kindness. Um, And when we first taught these practices that my colleagues like Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, and so forth, we all had our training in the 1960s and early 70s in, in um, Southeast Asia and India. When we first taught these, um, because I'd trained in an ascetic forest monastery and there was a kind of ethos of um, a kind of warrior quality of training, sit up all night, don't move, you know, really be mindful. Um, it didn't work very well here um, because it got conflated with the American values of striving and ambition and people were, okay, I want to get enlightened, you know, and the more they want to get enlightened, the tighter they became. Or um, 
they saw it um, as a way of I've got to be on my breath or I've got to pay attention. And then they judged themselves all the time. It amplified their self-criticism. Not only am I not good outside, but I'm also a failure as a meditator. And, you know, and I can see all this trouble in my mind and it amplified all of that stuff. And there was this famous dialogue we had with the Dalai Lama in the late 80s asking about how you deal with self-hatred in Tibet in in, in training and he was completely confused there is no word for self-hatred in tibetan what do you mean self-hatred it took a long time for the translator to kind of get through to him finally he looked up he said "Mm, but this is a mistake why would anyone do this he said oh no how many of you he asked in our group have had experiences of self-hatred and lots of self-criticism self-judgment almost all the teachers hands went up that were in this circle of teachers he said, oh, okay, I see. You have new problems here. I said, we have lots of new problems, right? Mm. So, um, in fact, from the beginning in Buddhist psychology, compassion and awareness are woven together. Because in order to be present for experience, there has to be some element of kindness. Otherwise, you're judging it. You know, this is good, that's not. I want more of this, I want less of that. But if you bring them together as loving awareness, um, then you're able to be present without manipulating or, or uh, being in conflict with the experience the way that it is. And that gives you both more understanding and also becomes the ground for, as you'll see later, for making healthier changes. <clears throat> and the studies of people like Antoine Lutz and Richie Davidson and show that with very simple training, um, people can have much greater access to compassion. Like that doctor I told you about at Stanford, or this letter, if I can find it. Let me see. (laughs) Dear Jack, I just want to express how grateful I am now to be aware of you. I found you through Duncan Trussell's podcast, and little by little, the ideas of having compassion for yourself kept inching their way toward what I guess is my heart. You've soothed me in darker days and given me a glimpse into a more loving reality for myself. Tonight I finally gave in and tried meditating. I decided after hearing you speak through my phone for months and months, I would finally give in and just sit with myself for a while. I'm not sure I've ever cried tears of joy like that in the 21 years I've lived so far. And so this is a young man. Um, um, for the first time, I stopped and really held my anger that I latched onto, my hatred, my anxiety, pain, and everything else I criticized myself about with softness and compassion, without judgment. And all of a sudden, I felt like I really could be loving to myself in the same way that I want to love others. I just finally got some relief with what I felt inside and want you to know that I love you for it. Thank you very much. You know, it doesn't take that much sometimes, but it does take an invitation and a direction of this is what's possible. So when people come to see us, those half or three quarters of you that are therapists or healers, just sort of the average in Marin County anyway, um, They carry their measure of human pain, their anxiety, their confusion. And the big question is, how do they touch it? 
with judgment, with fear, with overwhelm, with trying to get rid of it in some way? Or is there another way to be present for this story for you? This is from an acquaintance who's a teacher and a poet named Oriah Mountain Dreamer. And she was leading a kind of New Age meditation seminar up in Canada. At the end of a very long day, a small, thin woman in an oversized parka introduced herself as Isabel. Can I do this meditation on my own, she asked. Yes, I'm sure you can, although many people find it easier to establish a meditation practice with the help of a group. It's just hard to keep the discipline going on your own. But what will it give me? What will I get if I do this every day? Her tone took on a whining quality and I felt my irritation rise as she continued, how fast will it work? Will I feel a difference after a week? How will I know it's working? This was exactly the kind of thing I detested. The quest for the quick fix, the guaranteed outcome, the simple answer, do this and you get that. Anyway, my two young boys were waiting for me and I just wanted to get home. So I took a deep breath looked directly at Isabel and set my knapsack down on the floor. I tried to slow down my words thinking that maybe if I spoke slower, I would feel more patient. Well, I said, meditation is more a process than a goal-oriented activity. It can help you become more aware of what's going on within and around you, and this can help reduce stress. My best advice is to try it and just be patient with yourself. Of course, we're always teaching people what we need to learn in ourselves, but anyway. I picked up my bag and started to button my coat. I really did have to leave, and I wanted to get out of there while I was feeling virtuous for not snapping her head off. (laughs) But as I started to move away, Isabel suddenly reached out and grabbed my arm with surprising strength. But what I want to know, she said, her voice rising in a crescendo that bordered on real panic is, will it help me find God? If I meditate, will I have an experience of something or someone out there listening, somebody really with me? A wave of desperation swept out from her through me, and I was surprised to find my eyes filled with tears. This woman wasn't looking for an easy answer or a guaranteed formula because she was lazy. She didn't want a simple plan because she was unable or unwilling to think critically about what would work. She wanted something she knew would work and work quickly because she was hanging on by her fingernails. She wanted something that would work in a week because she was afraid that she simply wasn't going to make it through months or years. I put my hand gently over Isabel's where it gripped my arm. It's okay, Isabel. We all feel desperate at times, I said. Nobody does it by themselves. We all need help. Her hand relaxed a little beneath mine, and she started to cry, and we talked a while longer. There is no them out there. It's only us. When I left, I did not leave one of them. I said goodbye to one of us, a human being, doing the best she can, searching for the home for which all human hearts long. And so... The spirit of Buddhist psychology is to approach our human life with a fundamental compassion because everybody struggles. We are all in Isabel's place at some time or other. And so to 
to see the beauty of a human being and also to see the difficulty in their life as in all lives gives us a different kind of connection and an entirely different way to hold it. And it turns out, equally importantly, that it's not just personal, but it's collective. As we can see, no amount of outer development, nanotechnology and computers, the whole world wide web, space technology, biotechnology, I mean, extraordinary things. The whole library of, great library of Alexandria in my pocket, you know, along with a lot of bad YouTubes. But anyway, um, none of that outer technology, however cool it is, is going to stop continuing warfare, continuing racism, continuing environmental destruction, continuing tribalism, and all of these things. Those spring from the human heart. And we're now at the point where the enormous outer developments have to be matched by inner development of humanity. As the chairman of a previous generation of Joint Chiefs of Staff said, we are a nation of nuclear giants and ethical infants. And so there's, it's the training that you do in your own meditation or your own inner practice or that you invite others to do is not just personal for them or their families but is also profoundly political and here we have these huge fires that are happening but we don't just have these fires Um, we also have tremendous upheaval in our body politic and in our social contracts and you know whether it's healthcare or immigration or foreign policy oh yeah let's nuke North Korea that would be a real you know interesting thing to do to stop them from having nuclear weapons somehow. I don't know, when kids are in kindergarten, you know, and they start hitting each other with blocks, you say, use your words, right? Could we, like, maybe bring that up a little bit to the (laughs) world leader level? Um, And, of course, as um, the wise commentators on the political world will say, um, that... um, H.L. Mencken, who was a great commentator, said the whole aim of politics is to frighten you um, and therefore gain you know, your support. And we can feel how there is a kind of movement, um, you know, terrorism and you know, this and that, all the kinds of things that are trying to frighten us. Um, and the point of mindfulness practice is to not let the outer suffering and terror and so forth colonize your heart because it doesn't have to and to not buy in in some way to uh, what having just come back from China I would have to say here is our is the propaganda you know there's another way to express it and this comes from James Baldwin who writes I imagine one of the reasons that people cling to their hate and ignorance so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And human life is insecure. Security is a superstition. You know, it's just not. Um, As Helen Keller said, life's either a daring adventure or nothing. But when we get fed um, stories of 
<clears throat> terror and fear and all the things like that, um, married to our own lack of inner stability and all the kind of outer changes. Are we going to lose our jobs? Are we going to lose our power? Are we going to lose, you know, or our community is going to be taken over by somebody else? All the kind of fears that, that get stirred up. Um, a lot of what happens in the society then gets projected on others. So we have the enemy du jour. We had the communists, you know, or the socialists. We had, um, you know, long ago it was the, the, the Germans and the Japanese or whatever, and generations back. Then it's, you know, the immigrants or the Muslims or the gays and so forth. And now I think Russia is coming back as a kind of favored enemy, and the military loves that because terrorism you don't really need aircraft carriers for. But Russia, now there's an enemy you can kind of get behind and, and, and have huge, you know, need for armaments and things like that. Um, and what Baldwin is saying is that, you know, if we can't tolerate the reality that life is uncertain and find what's called the wisdom of insecurity, if we can't find a steadiness in ourselves, then we not only project it on others, but we create a social construct of fear. So there's something deeply political um, as well as personally transformative in learning and undertaking these practices. So how do we do this? The very first mindfulness and loving awareness practices are trainings in non-harming. And one sets an inner intention to not bring harm to other beings, reminded that this is possible for us as a way to live. Um, and that includes ourself. Um, so there are practices of gratitude. There are practices of reverence for life. May I meet each being with respect. And when you take a vow or when you recite this or you undertake this as part of my mindfulness and compassionate training, compassion training, that I will be compassionate to others and myself because human life is hard. It changes everything. In the, in the trainings I had in this monastery, you didn't want to hurt even the littlest creatures. And your whole consciousness changed because you could feel the web of life. Poem from Lloyd Reynolds, who was the greatest American calligrapher. He was a teacher of um, Steve Jobs, um, kind of that fantastic aesthetic. He writes, A bug crawls over the paper. Leave him be. We need all the readers we can get, right? And there's just something in it about a reverence for life that is the beginning of the training in compassion, of not harming. Basically, it's hard to sit and meditate after a day of killing and stealing. It just doesn't work. It's rather upsetting to the heart and the psyche. So you say, if you want to learn how to be wise and present, first step 
is attention to not harm yourself and not harm others. And the not harming yourself is equally important because I get people, you know, who are using, who are cutting, who are doing all kinds of self-destructive things um, because that's the only way they can tolerate their pain, basically, you know. And so it's not judging, but rather it becomes an invitation in working with people. Does this lead to happiness or to suffering? What would the wisest and most caring figure want for you as a teenager, as a, you know, as a, as a human being? And all of it underlying is to hold the vulnerability, the hurt, the pains, the confusion in compassion and not harming. And the beautiful thing is that compassion is natural and it can be strengthened. Um, but it's there in us. And you know the studies from infant studies at Yale to studies of rats at um, University of Chicago where if there's a, a rat trapped in a, in a very tight cage and can't get out and there's a free-roaming rat and they give it um, you know, some chocolate chips, favorite of rats, um, and there's a lever that the rat can learn to, to press to release the squealing rat that's uncomfortable, that when they find out they can do it, they always do it. And they save chocolate chips for them. I mean, if rats can do it, come on, you know. And my favorite kindergarten teacher, who's at Cascade Canyon in Fairfax, one of the, Peggy, one of the kind of world's great kindergarten teachers, during this build-up to the Iraq War, um, there were, for whatever reason, some um, military planes, um, transport planes, that were flying out of the East Bay and coming low over Marin. And the kids were out on the playground, and they were really scared because they're noisier than normal planes, and they were clearly like, army planes or air force planes or military planes they came running in and they said Peggy what is this and she said well um, you've heard there might be a war in Iraq and of course little kids pay attention to this even five year olds because it's on the TV and their parents are talking about it and they knew and she said Peggy what's on those planes are there bombs maybe are there guns on those planes maybe soldiers maybe um all kinds of weapons. And then one of the kids said, well, um, are there kids like us in Iraq? And Peggy said, yes, there are. And then said, well, they must not know that. They wouldn't bring bombs and guns to hurt children like us. We have to let them know. And so all the kids went out on the playground at the next break and they got that kind of butcher paper and they made the huge sign how do you spell Iraq, Peggy? I-R-A-Q. And then a big picture of a kid, a child, you know, 15 feet, um, so that it was big enough that the pilots could see it from the air, so that they would know that there were children there and they wouldn't hurt them. And this is born in us, to be caring beings for one another when we're not so frightened. And what happens is, you know, and it's there in the mirror neurons where we, where we resonate with what's happening to another near us, the um, Rizalati study that goes back decades. But the beautiful thing is that this can be awakened 
through a systematic practice. So I, I think what we'll do is do a little compassion practice and then take a stretch and bathroom break. Does that sound okay? <clears throat> I guess I'll tell you one more story, one of the ones that I tell very often. Um, I was leading a um, teaching on compassion with Pema Chodron, who's a wonderful Western Tibetan nun in the city. And it was a big evening. We had two or 3,000 people um, come. And after teaching about compassion, took questions, and a woman stood up, a young woman, very shaky and uh, difficult time for her because her partner had just committed suicide 10 days before. Um, And so she was shaky and vulnerable and sad and confused. And suicide is a really confusing thing for people because there is grief, but there's also guilt. Should I have done something different? You know, and there's anger. How could they? Um, you know, and loss and all these different complex emotions that come up that are profound. And so Pema had her stop and just feel her breath and hold all of that with a deep compassion. It was quite beautiful. And then I felt how alone she was So I asked, how many other people in that room um, had experienced the death by suicide of a family member or someone they were very close to? And I don't know, maybe 200 people raised their hands or stood up, 8% or something like that. And I said, let's just pause. I want you to turn your attention to this young woman And then I said to her, I want you to look around at all these people who've experienced what you're experiencing. And in that moment, it's as if the room turned into some great temple. There was silence and there was so much compassion and love and um, tenderness for the shared suffering of their lives um, that it was not only palpable for her, but for all of us who were there as a kind of witness to it. And this is really who we are. The compassion itself um, wants to come forth um, to hold the struggles of human incarnation. It's said in the metaphor for Buddhist psychology that to have a free heart or free spirit, there are two wings in which you fly. One is the wing of wisdom or understanding that sees things clearly. And the other is the wing of loving kindness or compassion that holds it all with tenderness. So now, um, let your eyes close gently and you're ready. And it'll be 10 minutes or so.
And because um, it's often difficult for people to start with trainings in compassion or loving kindness for themselves, for that issue of self-judgment and self-criticism, you'll hear pedagogically how we start with others and then move it back to ourselves. So let your eyes close gently. And first just come back to the breath and to being seated here in a simple, present way. And feel how you treasure your own life. You know, if you were to step out in the street and a car came rushing around the corner, how you would jump back on the curb because you do value your life and guard it in the face of trouble and sorrows. And feel your heartbeat and the life within you. Now bring to mind someone who you love dearly. Picture them, remember them, think of them. And even if it's a little complicated relationship, this is someone you love. And feel your natural caring for them as you remember and picture them. Notice how you hold them in your heart. And as you become aware of them and see them in your mind's eye, let yourself be aware of their measure of sorrows as in all human lives the sufferings they carry, some of which they may never have told anyone, the struggles or fears or hurts that are part of their life like all human lives. And as you see and sense their measure of suffering, their struggles or fears. Notice how your heart opens naturally with caring, with well-wishing. And when they're having a really hard time, how natural it is to extend comfort, to be touched by their pain, And to respond with compassion. What can I do to help? And now add to this natural response the 
inner whispering of some phrases of compassion. May you be held in compassion. Or may all your struggles and sorrows be held in compassion. May your pain and sorrows be eased. May your heart be at peace. May you be held in compassion. May your pain and sorrows be eased. May your heart be at peace. And now picture another person that you love. Have them stand next to this first one. let yourself also sense their measure of struggles and sorrows. Or their hurts and fears that they may never even give voice to, but that all human beings carry. And may you too be held in great compassion. May your pain and sorrow be eased. May your heart be at peace. And as you feel the tenderness toward these two loved ones, now imagine that they are gazing back at you with the same care. Imagine their eyes on you and they see your own struggles. They see your measure of tears and sorrows or hurts that you may never have given voice to. And they wish to you, may you too 
Hold yourself in great compassion. May your pain and sorrows be eased. They wish for you, may your heart be at peace. And you take in their care and compassion, how much they care for you. And then you can even put your hand on your heart if you wish and bring that care into yourself. May I hold myself with great compassion. And may my pain and sorrows be eased. My fears. And may I be at peace. May I live with a peaceful heart. And you allow a deep sense of caring to grow. May I hold myself with great compassion. May my pain and struggles be eased. May my heart be at peace. And know that this spirit of compassion in you can then be extended. And if we had time to continue this practice, You could picture other loved ones and friends, family and community, one at a time or in groups, and extend this invitation of compassion to all who suffer until you could even bring in the difficult people to all those, into the brotherhood and sisterhood of all beings. And let yourself feel how the beauty of every being brings you joy. And how the suffering of beings touches your heart, makes you weep. This practice brings a tender-hearted connection with all creatures and all life.
and staying with the compassion, let your eyes open. And just for a minute, gaze around with that care for all those seated around you, a sense of compassion for everybody's struggles, because they all have them, you know. And feel the natural well-wishing. May you hold yourself in compassion, every one of you. And may your struggles and sorrows be eased. Your heart be at peace. So this is one of a series of trainings that most of you are familiar with, of loving-kindness, compassion, forgiveness, joy, gratitude. There's a whole series of these trainings. And what's important is that there are practice. So sometimes you do it and it opens your heart and you go, oh yeah, I want to live this way. It feels very good. Sometimes you do it and it feels kind of mechanical. Okay, it's a practice. I'm doing it, but I don't feel very much. Sometimes you do it and it brings up the opposite. I hate these people. I'm never going to feel compassion for them. Not after what they did, you know. It can bring up all kinds of things. It's a kind of purification that shows you what's in your heart. And what you don't want to do is use it to judge yourself. If you struggle with it or it feels mechanical or brings up the opposite, you want to hold just what so, all of that with compassion. Because the point isn't to perfect yourself. You've tried that for a while now. You go to the gym, you work out, you know, you go to therapy, you're on a good diet, you know, all that stuff. And it helps a little bit, I know it does. But only a little bit. Um, The point isn't to perfect yourself, it's to perfect your love. To be able to meet this world with a loving heart. And so instead of judging yourself, you let this spirit of compassion grow because you do it over and over again if you take it as a practice. And when you've done it 20 or 50 or 100 times, your way of holding yourself starts to change and your way of holding the suffering of others. And it begins to transform the way you move through the world. So let's take a 10-minute or so, 15-minute silent break. Let's be quiet in the break. Bathroom, stretch, whatever, and then we'll start again. We'll ring the bell. Thank you. Mindful shopping if you want.
I'm aware as we come back after that compassion practice um, of all the people that I know and that probably many of you know who are up in Napa and Sonoma and Mendocino um, and how important it is as we hold them in our minds and hearts that we also extend that compassion and that spirit to them because people who've lost everything um, you know whose homes or businesses are just um, completely gone and so forth and their struggles that um, that becomes part of our practice and we can go further with it but it seems really important to acknowledge and name it as we're doing this it's not something in a vacuum but it's very much the response to what's happening in the world. And then we'll just take a pause for a moment and see how you are, how these teachings sound to you. Um, maybe even, even though I said we weren't going to do um, very many questions, um, just check in with you, comments or questions or anything. Helga, can you grab the microphone? Thank you kindly. Anyone? Look around for hands that are up. Yeah. Hi. When working with someone and trying to convey these practices to them, say, as a, as a healer, and um, often there's a lot of resistance. And how, how is it that we can meet that resistance and still encourage the practice? So are you, it's a great question, are you asking about this um, in a therapeutic setting, like where you would yes, be? Yes, in a therapeutic setting. Mm-hmm. Can you say what kind of, can you say a tiny bit more about the kind of resistance that you Um, experience from people? Yes. um, I've been this way my whole life. I won't be able to change. Mm -hmm. Um, These are terrible people. I can't feel compassion for Mm -hmm. them. Um, And underneath it all, I believe, is a lack of Mm -hmm. Mm self-compassion. And so trying to um, work with someone in that way compassionately, yeah. but to help them see that there's something underneath all of that. So, um, again, it's a really important question. And I appreciate it. What you're talking about is a quite tender process mm-hmm. because if someone says, I've been this way my whole life, I could never change, um, your first move, without even saying anything, is to hold that person in compassion and say, Imagine living in a consciousness that doesn't believe they can be anything but unworthy or suffering. And sometimes you can even say that out loud. You know, here I am, I'm sitting with you, and you say this, um, and I'll repeat what I heard you say. I'm like, you know, just this way, and I'll never be... um, And how hard it is even to hear this because of that amount of suffering. And so you start to actually model the compassion a little bit with them. Then there are various other things you could do. You could say, well, maybe you can't change yourself. But if a child came up to you and said, you know, an eight-year-old girl or seven-year-old girl, speaking of a tall woman, and said, you know, I, I don't feel good about myself and I'll never be, what would you say to them? Would you say that's the end of it for your life? And so there are different kind of gateways, if you will, um, or you could just begin to say, you know, 
Um, it is really hard to hold in compassion this life. It's difficult and it's scary because we think if we did, who would we be? I mean, you can voice some of the kind of fears. Uh, maybe we'd be overwhelmed. You know, the, the what you've done is you found a good way to protect yourself. This is your strategies to keep yourself safe and you want to be compassionate for that. It's, you know, thank you. And now, you know, do you want to live just from that old way or is there some possibility of change or you tell a story about change or something like that and in a way you find these different avenues which any person who's been a therapist for a while has a variety of tools Um, but I think the biggest thing is to let them have compassion for the way they are including the feeling that they can't change themselves and the inner you know the child beast can work or, or just your tenderness um I mean, I think that's really what most of therapy is about anyway, is loving people, quite honestly. Um, Yes, there are tools and ways to help them change, but a lot of it is just loving them Um, in in an ongoing and respectful and tender way. And after a while, you kind of wear them down. (laughs) Your relentless love, okay. But not in some weird way, you know. It's it's uh, respectful of them. And the more resistance, basically, the more that is the voice of how much suffering they've been through, what trauma they have, and so forth. Um, yeah, thanks for that. One more comment, question in the back. Hi. Hi. I'm actually from Sonoma, Hmm. and I'm currently evacuated, and I'm also a psychologist. Oh my God, you've got two bad things happening for you. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I had signed up for this a week or so ago prior to being evacuated and all that, and I decided that I had nothing else to do today, (laughs) so it was a good place to be. And I am just so incredibly grateful for your voice, <laughs> for the soothing voice that you have and the meditations that we've done so far and your awareness of the suffering that's going on just in our own community. And I decided to look at my phone on the break, which was a mistake, and another client texting me that she'd lost her home. So it's a lot to hold just personally, professionally, and all of that. And so, again, I'm just really grateful to be here. Thank you. I'm very glad you're here. I'm glad we have some clear air in this room for you to breathe coming down from Sonoma. And it is a lot to hold. It's first for your own home and your own life and people around. Um, And I also want to say, which I guess one gets to say it, in their 70s that human beings are amazingly resilient and that even though we go through some eras of tremendous suffering and this is going to be this is a huge one uh, certainly Napa and Sonoma and so forth um, that this is also going to draw out of the community care love resilience strength through all this going to be a struggle to do it Um, but I also see that we rebuild and that we know how to do it you know, and to be able to both hold the sufferings of people and loss and so forth and trauma, 
together with seeing that possibility of resilience is very, very important. Like we see, we look with the eyes that sees the best of human beings and their possibilities. So I'm really glad you're here and invite your friends. We're here or we open ourselves to anyone who wants to come down and any way we can provide shelter and support. So thank you. So let's continue a bit with two more, two more um, dimensions before uh, our, our lunch break. Um, and this is, um, I want to talk about deepening the capacity for mindfulness um, and with, with more detail. Um, and again, the neuroscience shows that with training in mindfulness, like Sarah Lazar, who's at Harvard, shows that there actually start to become changes in structural integration in the brain as people train their attention in mindfulness and things become more integrated between different brain parts. Um, and some research at Stanford, too, of more integrative fibers and so forth. Um, and for Sarah Lazar, one of the things that she found was that there's cortical thickening from mindfulness practice. Normally the cortex starts to thin as we age, as do lots of other things like our skin and so forth. But that through attentional mindfulness training, there's actually an increase, a thickening cortex. So you you stay smart, (laughs) we hope. Anyway. Um, And all this comes through the capacity that grows in us to be present, an increasing capacity for present, to acknowledge and give attention to what it makes up our life. So the, the dimensions of mindfulness and the foundations of mindfulness start with mindfulness of the body. And we began in that way by training our attention to the breath. And Emory University shows that through attention to the body, um, there's more rapid healing, there's improved immune function. Um, again, I talked about the telomeres and kind of epigenetic changes that are measurable. Put it in a very simple way. How do we touch and hold this mysterious body that we've been given? Because it's a mirror to consciousness and to our life. Um, And the body reflects the states of heart and mind, as we know, so we can have a really experience of a boulder of grief on our heart or an empty hole of loneliness when our children have all left for college or when we're in divorce or, you know, contracted in different ways, or the tensions we hold in our body that get built up. And Sir James McKenzie, who is the father of mind-body medicine, in the 1890s took a paper rose under a glass bell jar and pulled the glass off in front of a patient, an asthmatic patient who was severely allergic to roses. And even though this paper rose had no scent whatsoever, the minute he took it off, she she not knowing it, she went into a full-blown asthma attack. Because mind and body are connected, and how we think and how we envision affects our body as much as anything else. So how do we touch this? And a lot of what happens on the retreats here is that as people over some days get in touch with what's going on in their body, then all the 
traumas and the thoughts and the ideas and so forth, they also reveal themselves. And we get people who are in the middle of struggles in their business or their marriage. Um, and as they get quiet, they notice how much is carried in their body and how much they can learn from this. But what do you do? You know, do you fight it? Do you hate this stuff? Okay, I've found tension. I've got restriction and constriction in my body. Um, and it's a way to try to control the outer things. And we clench ourselves and fear and anger and all of those things. And part of our invitation in mindfulness is to notice that the body is a mirror for the states of heart and mind. And not only do we attend to what's difficult and learn to allow those, um, but also to allow and tune ourselves to moments of ease and well-being. And, um, you know, in again, in neuro neuropsychology and so forth, there's a negativity bias, which is just built into our nervous system that we're always looking for danger, and it's our survival instinct. You have to take care of danger, or you're not going to be able to reproduce or take care of your family or whatever it is. Um, and so we're ten times more tuned to see what's wrong than to allow ourselves to experience well-being. And here, in the training of mindful attention, not only in the body can we learn to hold the physical experiences of pain and throbbing and so forth, but we also can begin to allow the joy of life and tune ourselves to well-being. A poem by Eduardo Galeano, who writes, The church says the body is a sin. Science says the body is a machine. The marketplace says the body is a business. And the body says, I am a fiesta. <laughs> and there's, you can hear in it all these different ways of holding this human incarnation, this human body. And with mindfulness, we begin to allow both aliveness and the measure of pain and the measure of pleasure that come with having a human body. And when there's pain, you can hold it the way you would hold a crying child. You don't tr- you know, try to get the child over it or something like that. This baby's been fed and diapered with you. There's nothing they need and they're just crying. What do you do? You hold the child, rock the child, whatever it is. And after a while, ah, you can feel the softening. All right, I feel held. It's safe enough. And in a certain way, to begin to pay attention to the body the difficult things can be held with this loving awareness and then what starts to happen is it begins to unravel and there'll be shaking and tremors and you know release and sometimes it feels like it gets worse and energy movement and so forth and as you meditate you can feel colder or hotter or you know um, all kinds of vibrations and things like that and little by little the body opens because with attention um, it wants to open. And it's the, the lack of attention that allows things. You sit quietly and your shoulders are tight and your jaw hurts and your back hurts. And it's been the place for the last months or years where every time there was a little conflict, you tightened. And then it gets stored in there in different patterns. And then as you sit quietly, it begins to open. And sometimes it hurts more. It's not because you're doing it wrong. It's because you're becoming conscious of what was there that was held in your body. And then the game is to be interested and kind 
and to allow the body to show you what it's carrying, um, as however it is. One of the great practices, there are a couple that we don't have to t- time to do this morning. One which almost everyone knows is the kind of body scan. It's part of what John Kabat-Zinn teaches in mindfulness-based stress reduction. We teach it on retreats here. And to be able to go systematically, and it's not just a release, it's not just a relaxation, but it's actually a deep presence for each part of the body. And sometimes it's very painful to feel what's there. And you're not trying to get rid of it. But as you bring attention again and again, the body starts to open. And that free flow of attention and inner energy then allows for a profound healing. Um, And later on we'll talk about trauma, but those are all layered in the body. Um, Trauma is there with stories and emotions. But I remember a woman who came on a retreat and she could not sit still. As soon as she sat, fear would arise or her body would start to shake. And after a minute, she said, I just can't do it. Um, So, of course, when somebody can't do something or there's a lot of resistance, which is what was that question before, um, I get really interested. Oh, something's cooking. What's going on? You know? Um, So I said, let's sit together. She came in and we sat. And I said, all right, we'll just try sitting and you can describe to me what happens. Close your eyes. Begin to sit. She said, okay, I get quiet. My body starts to shake. I feel a rising of fear. I, I got to get out of here. I said, stick with it. Just make loving awareness a space to hold all this. And then all of a sudden her eyes fly open. And she says, ropes. And I say, tell me what you see. It turned out that she had been abducted 10 years before, kidnapped, tied up, all kinds of terrible things. Um, and that was all still in there. And the minute she sat still, it triggered that, memory of being tied up and being unable to move. Meditation was unable to move. So all that stuff came up immediately. So we started to hold it with compassion, but it was not the right thing to just stay there. She told me some of the story, which I needed to hear, and she needed to have witness, some of the emotions. And I said, why don't you do walking meditation? Don't try to sit. And so she did for those 10 days of retreat, She didn't sit, mostly. She just walked back and forth, being mindful of each step, noticing the emotions, seeing all the images that came. And little by little, she walked herself back into her body. Because she actually couldn't live in her body after that trauma, and she'd been doing all kinds of other things to avoid the trauma that she carried. So the attention to the body becomes really important. And the ability to help in these different practices of body scan or walking or just bringing a healing presence to the places that hurt. We did the compassion practice in the same way. You can, whether it's use your hands or use the attention, go to the places that feel the most tight when they arise and hold them like a child softened because usually we contract and there's a resistance and when you contract and resist what happens it locks it in and with that softening and kind attention then the body says oh finally she he's paying attention to me and things that have held been held can open so that's first foundation of mindfulness and training we'll do a little more practice we'll get to it in a little bit the second foundation is feelings 
And um, there's both primary and secondary feelings. The primary feelings, which make up our human life, is that everything we experience has a pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant quality to it. You'll notice that when you look. And since you were an amoeba, and you started to move toward the food positively and withdraw from the whatever was toxic or dangerous, it's been built into your many incarnations, whether you believe it or not, your cells remember this, um, to like what's pleasant and dislike what's unpleasant. And that's very natural. But um, it doesn't serve us as higher mammals in the way that we are, because if that kind of automatic reaction happens all the time, then you are buffeted back and forth. As soon as it's pleasant, you like it, and you grasp and you want more. As soon as it's unpleasant, you resist it, you fear it, you try and push it away. And your life is always one of reaction to experience in a kind of primitive way. With mindfulness or loving awareness, you begin to notice, so this is pleasant or this is unpleasant, and it doesn't scare you, or this is neutral, and I tend to space out. You, you actually develop the capacity to be present for your life without so much reactivity. And then based on the primary feelings, there arise the secondary set of feelings, which include all kinds of emotions, um, and they direct your life pretty much. You could say your life is directed by your thoughts, but William O. Douglas, Supreme Court Justice, said at the Supreme Court level where I work, 90% of our decisions are based on how we feel about things, and the other 10% is used to justify how we feel about it in legal terms. And if it's true in the Supreme Court, you know it's true in your life, right? What you like, how you feel about things, and so forth. And so with mindfulness what you can do is to begin to bring a loving awareness, a kind attention to all the different feelings that come. Sadness or anxiety or loneliness or boredom or sleepiness or excitement or love or joy or sense of ease or peace, all those that are kind of more positive emotions. And I have a list that... uh, I made years ago, now you can Google it and find these lists of 500 feelings. Um, It's very rich. Um, Affectionate, ambitious, aggressive, anguished, ambivalent, angry, amused, amorous, aversive, appreciative, argumentative, adamant, Adult, amazed, blissful, broken-hearted, bonkers, bored, bad, belligerent, bouncy, buoyant, bottled up, brave, cheerful, calm, claustrophobic, curious, crestfallen. It just goes on and on and on. We have a river of feelings that move through our consciousness. And usually we just kind of notice them half a little bit and then they direct our life. So to become mindful, you start to notice the states that come in your own body and mind. And as you do, and the study of UCLA shows 
um, that as you can name or acknowledge your feelings, it increases affect regulation. It increases your emotional balance and that you're actually able to regulate with all these feelings rather than being thrown around by your fear and your confusion and your longing and your love and your desire and your hate one after another. So the way you do it is to acknowledge them, feel them in your body and heart and mind, and then often to name them. Like the shamans say, when you know the name of the dragon, it starts to give you power over it. And the minute you can say, oh, sadness feels like this, and anger feels like this, and fear feels like this, and longing feels like this, or love feels like this, the minute you can actually name what you're experiencing, it starts to give you a kind of a a freedom. And then to trust that you can tolerate your feelings. I mean, this will take some practice. I mean, I can remember a woman coming in with enormous rage, lots of abuse in her background. And she said, if I let myself feel this, I will just kill people, you know. I'll just be, the, the, the fire is so destructive. I said, well, let's see. You know, again, it's meditative, so you don't have to act it out exactly. Close your eyes, we'll do this together. Let yourself feel in sort of fire-burning rage. And I said, well, how big is it? You know, let's get a nature image. Is this like a hurricane or a tornado? She said, bigger. I said, well, you know, a tsunami? She said, no, no, this is nuclear. Okay, I said, well, let yourself feel it. This was bottled up in this woman. You can imagine what her life was like. Nuclear, huge. I said, how big is it? She said, if I let it go, it's going to obliterate everything. I said, well, let's see what happens. So this huge nuclear fire and flame and hatred and rage. Okay. Let her feel it, imagine it, picture it, and so forth. She was ready. She'd done some mindfulness training, so it wasn't like it was just the first thing she did, but she was ready to try to explore this. And after a few minutes, she shook her head. She said, dead. I said, her eyes are still closed. I said, keep your eyes closed. What's dead? She said, everything. I just burned it all. It's just the whole galaxy is all dead. I said, all right, name that dead, dead. We're just acknowledging, naming each thing. It was rage, rage, fire, fire, burning, burning. Now dead, dead. Okay, dead, dead. She's naming it, dead. She said, it's dead. Nothing's going to happen. I said, well, let's give it some time. You keep naming it dead. Let's give it a year, a hundred year, a century, maybe 10,000 years. How long is it going to take? She said, oh, a million years. I said, fine, we got time. So you're sitting there dead, dead. Let a million years pass, which was really a minute or two, right? Just, just everything's dead. See what happens. Dead, dead. She shook her head. I said, what was that? Nothing. She said, okay, more dead. Give it another million years. Shook her head again. I said, what's that? She said, well, over there's a little green. I said, well, do you want to check it out? There's a little planet over there and little green things are starting to come back, you know, like the grass pushing itself up from the sidewalk. And um, life was coming back. And what you learn in working with feelings is that uh, if you can allow them with loving awareness, that you can trust that there's a fundamental healing that wants to take place and that it can happen for people. Um, As Pablo Neruda, the great poet, said, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. And there's something about life itself that insists on renewing itself.
Yeah, let's see where we are. So let's do... Well, all right, I'll tell you one story and then we'll do do a practice together. And this is one I've read for many years. It comes from a New Yorker but um, account of a small unit of American soldiers um, who were walking down the streets. There's 24 of them in the holy city of Najaf in Iraq at the beginning, early years of the Iraqi war when hundreds of Iraqis poured out of buildings on either side, fists waving, throats taut, they pressed in on the 24 Americans who glanced at one another in terror. And the recorder of this, who was a journalist, said, I was afraid somebody would open fire and there would just be a huge massacre. And at that moment, the American officer in charge, wearing sunglasses, turned to his men and said, take a knee. And so, against the background of this seething crowd that was now a thousand, um, he held his own rifle over his head with the barrel pointed to the ground, a gesture that was almost biblical. And after he said, take a knee, the soldiers who looked at him as if he were crazy, one after another, swaying in their bulky body armor and gear, knelt before the boiling crowd and, like their officer, pointed their guns to the ground. The Iraqis fell silent, their anger subsided, and the officer ordered his men to withdraw. The journalist then tracked down Lieutenant Colonel Chris Hughes and asked him where he had learned to tame a roiling crowd in a war zone like this, and he assured the journalist that it wasn't part of the Army Manual of Instruction. But he said, the problem is that if you fire even warning shots, the next thing you know is people start firing one another and everyone starts to die. He said, I understood that the Iraqis felt that our presence there was disrespecting their holy mosque and their culture. And the obvious solution was a gesture of respect. So there's some way in working with feelings that each feeling is welcomed almost with a bow, and you name it, sadness, grief, rage, fury, love, joy, longing, um, peace, that you can actually acknowledge each one with a gesture of respect. So now, um, here's what I want you to do. We'll practice for a little bit. Um, Is we'll start again as we had with mindfulness of the breath. But then, when a strong body sensation arises, tension, tingling, coolness, uh, throbbing, let go of the breath when it's strong and turn your attention as if to bow to it and name it. Oh, tingling, throbbing, tightness, fire. And hold it with kindness and see what it does. It might get stronger or move in the body or change. But give it that loving attention. And then when you're at ease with it or it subsides, you go back to your breath for a while, letting things mostly be in the background. And then after some time, maybe a minute or something, some other strong thing comes. Maybe it's an emotion. You know, I really feel sad about all that's lost that's happening in my friends in Sonoma and Napa. Or I feel upset about this. 
or I, I love this meditation. I want more. I'm going to come on a retreat. I'm excited. And then you name it gently excitement or sad, sad, excited. And you feel it move through your body and mind. And the interesting thing is that um, feelings actually don't last that long. You know, you're sitting there and maybe you get angry about something. Okay, anger, anger, they did this to me. I'm really angry at her or him. And then after about 15 seconds, you notice the anger has turned into resentment. How could they do that? I resent them, right? And then you stay with it a little bit and you say, I hate this. I hate feeling the anger. I hate that people act this way. And then a few seconds later you think, but I shouldn't be a hateful person. This is terrible. And you notice it's turned into self-judgment. Judging, judging, right? But then... They did hurt me, and all of a sudden you feel righteous about it. I need to stand up for myself. And then you start to feel, I am angry. And then you feel the anger for a while, and you notice how sad you feel that people would treat you that way, and the anger turns into sadness. you know. And then about 15 seconds later you think, I wonder what I should eat for lunch. You know, because the mind has no pride, right? And you can be in the middle of this great drama and it starts thinking about, I saw that nice thing for sale in the bookstore, or, you know, I'm going to go to the deli, you know, and then I'm no good at this meditation and you judge yourself. I feel so frustrated. But I am naming it all. And then you snort, oh, this is pride. I'm doing well, you know. And you just start to see that the states come and go one thing after another, you can name that and then you go back to your breath for a while. And you start to develop the capacity to be present for what is arising and passing. And you become more like the sky of awareness, of loving awareness, that can allow these things without taking each one personally or without getting lost in it. Does that make sense to you? Okay, so let your eyes close gently. It will take 10 minutes or so to practice. And again, keep it quite simple. So as you sit, find a way to be both upright and present, but also gracious, some ease in your body. And come back to the training of loving awareness of your breath, of attention, as a way to stabilize awareness to connect body and mind. And as you feel the breath, let the other experiences be in the background, let them rise and fall like waves of the ocean around the breath.
And after a little while, even as you keep going back to the breath, periodically you'll notice a very strong wave arise that pulls your attention from the breath. It might be a strong sensation in the body, tightness, pain, throbbing, tingling, pleasant. Or it might be a strong feeling, sadness, excitement, longing. When a strong sensation or a strong feeling arises, let go of the attention to the breath and as if to greet it with a bow, name it gently. Oh, sad, 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 or pain in the body, pain or throbbing, tingling, tingling. And as you name it gently, hold it with this loving awareness and see what it does. It might open or expand or get more intense or change to another feeling for a bit. And you name that. And after you are at ease with what's present, then return back for time in the breath.
through this breath or this moment's experience received with loving awareness, name gently, you become the mindfulness itself. You are the loving awareness that notices breath, body, or feeling.
this breath or this feeling or these sensations. Name gently, acknowledge with loving awareness. So for the few of you who haven't done this before, how was it to name your experience as you sat with it? Was that helpful? What did you notice? Anyone? Or even if you have done it before? Someone up in the front here. Helga. sort of a burning question and my intention is that it will help clarify some confusion for me and for hopefully many people. Um, I'm really been pondering this idea about the being goal oriented. Um, I came to mindfulness to heal my own trauma and to kind of rewire and transform the landscape of my mind And with a lot of practice, I have gone from, you know, being more of a negative default mode or having a lot of anxiety to being able to sit with it. And um, I guess my question is, or what I'm trying to ask is that now that I sort of believe in, you know, the power of thought and there's kind of these two... um, Ideas that I feel like are um, not, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but they're um, hitting each other, is like how much am I allowing and letting it to move through? And then how much am I, you know, um, 
trying to cleanse my mind Mm -hmm. and become more self-loving, right? Because I don't want to just keep allowing the self-hatred. Yes. So this is a really great question, and part of it we'll answer as we go along, because it is so important. As you can feel, we're starting, like George Shaler with the gorillas and so forth, just taking our seat and seeing the landscape, because even the self-hatred, to use your word, in some way has built into it this kind of judgment, I'm not okay and I have to fix myself. There's somehow a belief in that. So to, to establish the capacity to be present with loving awareness for all that landscape becomes critical as a, as a ground. And then it's possible to direct and choose from that ground um, what thoughts or what direction you go. And so listen as we go along, because it's a beautiful question. Um, And hopefully it will answer, and if not, remind me later in the day when you feel like it hasn't been, but I think it will. So, And it leads perfectly into the next piece that I want to talk about. We've been working with mindfulness of the breath and body, and then mindfulness of feelings. And does that work for you? You could notice the feelings and acknowledge them. Pretty much people are able to do that when um, name them and so forth when you turn your attention to them. Now the next mindful, foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of, the, of thoughts. And as the verses in Buddhist psychology begin, um, mind is the forerunner of things. Out of mind are created all the life. I mean, the, if you drive over the Golden Gate Bridge and see the city of San Francisco, every building you see and all the streets, and all, they were thoughts in somebody's mind. So is the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, all the human-made things, anyway, start as thoughts. Um, and then you sit quietly, you start to pay attention to your own breath, and you notice what's called the river of thoughts. The mind secretes thoughts the way the salivary gland secretes saliva. It just does, right? Um, and it's not good or bad, it's just what it does. Um, that inner dialogue. And the wild thing is that if the person next to you had a little speaker on the side of their head and you could hear their thoughts, the ideas and plans and judgments and reruns and things, you'd start to move away from them because they'd be really like, oh my God. You know, they're wacky in there, but of course we all have those kind of thoughts. Um, And they're often reruns. I think, you know, 80% of the thoughts you have today are the same ones you had yesterday. It's like you're stuck in an old motel room late at night on the shopping channels on and you can't change the channel. You're just getting all these old thoughts. Um, And they're often one-sided or not true. Um, Story for you. When my daughter Cindy was in first grade, we took a trip to California to visit family. While we were there, she lost a tooth. She ran into the kitchen to show me and asked if the tooth fairy could fly that far all the way from the East Coast. My mom shot a look of concern and later suggested that by indulging in such fantasies, I was teaching my child not to trust adults. Wasn't she going to feel betrayed when she found out the truth? Um, So... The next time Cindy lost a tooth at home, she chattered with excitement as I put her to bed. She was now seven and a half, 
And she said, um, how does the tooth fairy get in? Through the window, I explained. Well, shouldn't we unlock it then? Oh, I do that right before I go to bed, I said. Why does the tooth fairy want everybody's teeth, she went on. (laughs) I took a deep breath, considered my mother's advice. Cindy would soon figure out the truth anyway, so I told my inquisitive seven-and-a-half-year-old that, in fact, I was the tooth fairy. She cried hard. I apologized and explained she was getting to an age at which it was more important for me to be honest with her than to play imaginary games. We cuddled for a while and she stopped crying. She had one last question. What do you wear? (laughs) This is how the mind works, you know. It just believes its stories. Um, And we get, we just get lost in them. Um, So the thing that's um, kind of important is to be able to see the stories, um, to step back, if you will, with the witnessing quality of loving awareness and see uh, what stories we're believing. Are they healthy stories or unhealthy stories? Which is a little bit like the question that was just asked. But the very first step is just to realize that with our attention, we can start to see the different thoughts that go through our mind, which lots of people don't really have that capacity. They haven't trained that. So we're going to do a little practice now for 30 seconds or 60 seconds. You don't even have to change your posture much. What this practice is, is you're going to count your thoughts, okay? Like the cat at the mouse hole. And they're tricky little guys um, because as you start to pay attention, they get quiet. And then they sneak up from behind and they'll say, there haven't been many thoughts yet, have there? Oh, three, right? Now, the numbers are also a thought, but you don't want to count those. That's the cat chasing its tail, right? You don't want to do that. Or it's very quiet in here, four. You know, there haven't been many thoughts, five, whatever. Um, Sometimes it'll be picture thoughts. Sometimes it'll be word thoughts that describe things. Now, understand that a thought, a picture, or a word is not the same as a direct sense experience. So if you hear a sound or feel a sensation, that's just a sound or sensation. Then there comes a, gee, that's a sound. I wonder, um, you know, that's the, did I hear the bell from the other retreat? And you have a little story about it. Or you hear that sound and you have an image of a, of a bird or something. I wonder what that is. Um, So it's the words or pictures that describe experience and not the direct experience. All right, you ready? Let your eyes close on your mark. Get set. Count.
So question for you, don't need the mic for this. How many thoughts did you count? Six? Ten? Ten there? Five? Seven? Eleven? Nineteen? Two? All right, so the person who had 19 thoughts, did they have more thoughts than the person who had five? Or did the person who had five thoughts just have longer thoughts? You know, And then there's a group of you that had almost only picture thoughts, right? Some of you, I know that. And you probably know that of yourselves, that you think in images. Other people had just word thoughts without any pictures, some of you. And then some of you get the audio-visual portion together. You get kind of words and pictures combined. So that's also interesting that our minds operate in different ways. You can't always make an assumption of another person that you're talking to that they even can think in quite, that they even think in the same way that you do. But the important thing is that you are able <clears throat> to step back and be that loving awareness that could notice the thoughts. And this gives you an enormous freedom because your thoughts direct your life, you know, applying for which job or who you should marry or who you should divorce or what kind of home you're going to design or, you know, all these other things. Yet often we kind of live inside them and we can't take a step back. But here we're actually able to see the thoughts and then in doing so we can respond rather than react, which is really what your question was about. You know, and is this a healthy or useful set of thoughts or, or not? Um, Hawaiian educator Puanani Burgess tells a story where she worked in school systems with a process called building beloved community, like Martin Luther King's phrase. And the exercise she uses is to have people tell three stories The first is the story of your names. The second is the story of your community. And the third is the story of your gift. So one time I did this process in our local high school. We went around the circle and this young man, Kele, told the story of his names well and the story of his community. But when I get to, when he came time to tell the story of his gift, he said, what, miss? What kind of think, gift do you think I have? I'm in this special ed class. I have a hard time reading. I can't do math. Why you make me so ashamed for to ask that kind of question? You think if I had a gift, that put me in this class? And he just shut down. And the teacher, she said, I felt really ashamed because I've never tried to shame anybody. A couple of weeks later, we're in the local grocery store, and I see Kayla down one of the aisles, and I think, gosh, I've you know, shamed him in some way. I'll I'll turn the other way. But before I can turn around, I hear him, auntie, auntie, and he runs toward me. He said, I've been thinking, you know, what kind of gift I have? What my gift? And I say, okay, brother, what kind of gift? And he says, you know, I've been thinking, I can't do that math stuff and reading hard, but auntie, when I stay in the ocean, I can call the fish. And the fish, he comes every time. And every time, even when we don't have money, I can put food on my family table every time. And sometimes when I stay in the ocean and the shark, he come, he look at me and I look at him and I tell him, Uncle, I'm not going to take plenty fish. I just take one, two fish just for my family. All the rest I leave for you. And so the shark, he say, Oh, you cool, brother. And I tell the shark, Uncle, you cool. And the shark, he goes his way and I go mine. 
And I look at this boy, Kaylee, and I know what a genius he is. But in our society, the way the schools are run, he's rubbish. He's not appreciated at all. So when I talk to his teacher and the principal, I ask them, what would his life have been like if this curriculum were gift-based? If we were able to see the gift in each one of our children and taught them around their gifts, what would happen to our community, you know, to the collective, if we could understand that each person carries gifts to this world? And that's a traditional African understanding as well. Maladoma talked about it in his culture. I love his metaphor. He says we're all born with a certain cargo. It's like the West African cargo boats that go up the river. He said everybody's born with a certain cargo and your task in life is to deliver your cargo. That's what makes you happy and what brings you, you know, connection to the world. So we have these stories about how someone should be or how we should be, you know, I'm in this class, I don't count, I don't matter. And it's not until we can actually step back and see the stories that we tell that a deeper kind of freedom comes. It's like Mark Twain who said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened, right? And so we have all those stories we tell about what's going to happen that aren't necessarily true. And once you do it, then there are other teachings of thought replacement, where if you have thoughts of um, self-hatred or self-judgment or self-criticism or paranoia or something, you can replace them with thoughts of or practices of loving-kindness or of compassion. and You start to train your attention to go toward that which is healthy. My teacher said it's like you're under a mango tree and you shake the tree and the fruit falls down. Do you pick up the rotten mangoes or the health or the good ones? You pick up the good mangoes and you start to be able to see the thought structure and then you can see these ones don't have my best interest in mind. Let me let go of those ones. And these ones bring well-being, connectedness, health. Um, and it's interesting because I remember talking to a psychiatrist about all of this, a friend who'd been doing meditation. He said he had a a patient who was um, obsessive and paranoid and had some really pretty significant mental illness and mental problems. And he said, I taught him loving-kindness meditation. And because he was obsessive, he did it a lot, a lot, a lot. (laughs) But it was a lot better than the other thoughts. And because he was paranoid, he used to get upset at the cars that went by late in the night and the dog at his neighbors that would bark. And now when that happened, he would say, I don't think I'm doing enough loving kindness for the dog, you know, or the people in the neighborhood. And he would sort of up his loving kindness practice. And he said, yes, in a certain way, he was still caught. But it was an improvement considerably in his own mind and his life. So there are all these trainings, whether it's mindfulness-based cognitive therapy that works and the research shows from Zindel Siegel and others that relapse for significant depression can be prevented through the ability to both see what you're thinking and then change the channel of the thoughts. Um, Or Marsha Lenahan's DBT, Dialectical Behavior Therapy, where she takes people who have pretty significant problems, borderline diagnosis and other things like that, and uses mindfulness training in a pretty effective way to help them change their lives. 
So again, just sort of looking at Buddhist teachings, Buddhist teachings as a psychology, um, these are some of the ways of applying it. Now, there's one more step of deepening our understanding of how to apply these teachings this morning, especially since it's not so much a day to go out and do walking meditation, which we otherwise might have done. Um, And this is expressed or described in the acronym RAIN, which came from my friend, colleague Michelle McDonald. Um, And RAIN speaks of the way to deal with difficult um, problems, emotions, conflicts that we carry in ourselves. Um, And the acronym stands for recognize, accept, investigate, and not identify or not take it personally. And so we'll go through those a little. And as we do, even before we do it, you can think of a particular problem that you have in your life to which you could apply these practices of RAIN, of recognizing. Just in case you're a person that has problems, you can kind of bring that to mind. All right? So, recognition. The research of Cliff Saren at UC Davis and also of Norman Farb shows that as you train in loving awareness or mindful attention, it actually enhances clarity of perception. You can see more clearly. Um, You see what's happening. You can describe it clearly. You understand it more clearly. So this is recognition. Um, And one beautiful Zen phrase for this is that to become mindful is to become intimate with the world. Mindfulness is a kind of intimacy, an intimacy that notices what's actually happening and what that what that is like. And I remember actually very early on, decades ago, I was, um, before I was married, I was in a relationship um, and it was quite a bit of struggle and I was probably in my late 20s, early 30s. Um, and I went to see a friend of mine who was a good therapist and I was talking about, you know, he said, she said, what was going on and so forth. And he just listened for a while and he looked at me and he said, you're really angry, aren't you? And I thought, moi? You know, Mr. Buddhist, former monk, that really angry. It wasn't the story I was telling. I was frustrated and she did and so forth. But the minute he said it, it crystallized on me. I said, oh yeah, actually I am angry. And there's ways we don't even know what we're feeling. You know, and somebody else can out, 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 be outside of us and say this. Or, you know, I think of another colleague who's a very skilled and wonderful meditation teacher, but in her relationship some years ago, this guy had betrayed her, jilted her, and dumped her, basically. And she was trying to be compassionate and kind and so forth. And I was talking with her. It's obviously a lot of pain. And I said, have you considered revenge? And this huge smile came across her lips because you knew she had, right? And just name it. I mean, she wasn't going to do it. Right, 
but just to be able to acknowledge this is what is going on. This is how it feels. Betrayal feels like this. Hurt feels like this. Longing feels like this. Loneliness feels like this. What are the stories? You know, the grief or the... Or whatever. And we have all these stories inside, so this is how we're holding it. And acceptance is just to see it clearly and, you know, and acknowledge... Um, well, recognition, rather, R, is just to recognize what's happening. So there's the car- cartoon from Jules Pfeiffer that shows the man sitting there a little disconsolately. And the first panel says, I inherited my father's way of thinking and analyzing the world. And the second panel says, um, I inherited um, my father's uh, emotions and kind of the all the feelings and you know how he would approach things and third one i inherited my father's style of moving and dressing and walking through the world and then the last panel says and i inherited my mother's contempt for my father right <laughs> and so there you have a little therapeutic story in four panels and so forth <clears throat> the first step is just to recognize this is the way that it is with loving awareness grief feels like this you know, um, longing feels like this. Fear feels like this. And to understand that they're human. And that leads to the next step, which is whatever your problem that you're looking at as we go through these now, you've got to accept that, recognize this is the way that it is, and then to accept it. And the acceptance doesn't mean that at some point you're not going to respond to it, but until we can recognize that there are still 28,000 nuclear warheads around the world, and bombs, um, to recognize it and accept that that's true, we can't go any further in how we're going to eliminate them or hopefully not use them or something like that. The first step is say, this is where we are. So recognition and then acceptance. And so when people sit and meditate, um, my teacher called it stopping the war. With it, you know, you're always at war with the way it's supposed to be, what's too big or too small or too late or too early or whatever, your conflict with the world. Take your seat and stop your war with the world and just be present for the way that it is. Um, and so you sit and you get sleepy and instead of judging it, you acknowledge oh, this is sleepiness. You know, maybe your body's tired. You haven't, you've been running around a lot and you get quiet and it taps you in the shoulder and says, remember me? I'm tired, you know? Or maybe you're restless. And um, you sit there and you pay attention to restlessness and you name it restless, restless. And it gets worse. I can't stand it. I've got to get up so restless. I hate this, hating, hating. Restless, restless. And then what to do with it? You name it restless, restless. And if it doesn't, go away and it gets worse and worse then there's something else you can do you can say okay take me I will be the first person to die of restlessness at Spirit Rock this year (laughs) kill me do me in right and the minute you say "All right, dying dying restless I'm going to die of restlessness the minute you do that it loses its power over you because you're not resisting it and most of the difficulty is actually your resistance to the experience so this is the, the next step. Um, Tara Brock uses the language, I consent. This is where we start. Arthritis in my body that's growing worse. The loss of a parent. Um, you know, the troubles outside us. Um, here's a, 
Zen master's poem, Isa. Dew evaporates, and all this world is dew, like the dew on the tip of a leaf. So dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. A little kind of like a haiku. Now I want you to listen one more time, because he wrote this at the death of his six-year-old daughter. Dew evaporates, and all this world is dew. So dear, so refreshing, so fleeting. And this is his acceptance. This is what was the most beautiful, you know, refreshing, delicious experience and now gone. As will everything be gone at some point. Hmm. There's a book that I really admire and admire the guy, Father Greg Boyle, who wrote it called Tattoos on the Heart. If you want to read, if you haven't read it, a really remarkable account. Father Greg Boyle started uh, Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles and works with gang kids and stuff like that and does really, really remarkable work. So, um, Anyway, one of the stories, there are many, many in the book that are quite moving and extraordinary, is um, he went one morning because he's also the priest for several of the different Catholic churches in the barrios in, in East Los Angeles and elsewhere. And he went to this church one morning to do a service and sprayed across the front of the church in graffiti was the big words, wetback church, because it had been a place that harbored immigrants who had just come over the border. And he was horrified by this. It was like a slanderous thing to do or a hateful thing to do. And he went in and there were the people waiting for the service. And he said, you know, one of the things that our gang kids can do, we have a contract from the city for Homeboy Industries is they clean up graffiti. I'll get them over here right away. This is a terrible thing. It was hateful and so forth. And kind of trying to tend them and hold this um, and sorry about it. And then this one woman, Rosa Saldana, um, stood up on her chair. She never usually spoke and waved her hands and said, you will not remove that. And he said, I beg your pardon? And she said, if there are people who are cast out, judged, despised, despised or rejected because they are mojados, wetbacks, then we shall be proud to call ourselves the wetback church. And there was something in her expression that says, no, we will not reject this. We will stand up proudly and say, we are the place that provides sanctuary and leave that on there. And this is kind of a, um, a literal expression of what it means to, to accept the way things are and to see them, to recognize them and say, this is the circumstance we find ourselves in. And you, when you think about your difficulty, recognizing and accepting it is the way that it is. And then, the next step is to investigate, to look deeply. And when you look deeply, how do you hold it in the body? How do you touch it? Is it tight or loose or painful? How big is it? Is it the hurricane or the typhoon or nuclear? 
You know, what are the emotions that come with this difficulty with you? What are the stories that it tells? Poem from an eight-year-old boy. I want to tell the fish, eat only the bait, not the hook. When you eat the bait, start from its edge and slowly gnaw bit by bit. Never ever gobble it in one go. Right? And he's really trying to express something that he's learned about that you can approach things, even things that are difficult, but that you have to be, you have to look carefully, you have to investigate, you have to see how this is. So when things are difficult, you recognize, you accept them, and then you look deeply. And, you know, then you start to hear the stories, I'm unlovable, I could never be loved. I mean, one of the most meaningful things in working with clients who bring that story up at the right moment is to have them give voice to that after some compassion and other work and then look in their eyes and say, is that true? Without any judgments, just say, say that again and tell me, is that really true? Do you know that to be absolutely true? That you're unlovable. And when you gaze in someone's eyes and ask what's true, it's very hard for them to lie in quite the same way. They're going to hesitate. Well, it sort of feels that way. Is it really, really true? And it can change somebody's life to see them in a, in a very, very different way because of it. So there are all these different stories. I'm unlovable. Um, or, you know, when you investigate anger, I notice that when I get angry... And I've learned this. If I express that anger directly, I'm angry at you for doing this, um, it goes one direction. But usually underneath anger is what? Hurt, fear, some kind of pain, or some feeling of being disrespected. And if I approach that situation or that person and say, I feel hurt, or I feel afraid, they become interested But if I say, I'm so angry at you, they're not as interested in that. They back away. So investigation means to look at what are the stories it tells, what are the um, mind states with it, um, you know, what are the emotions that are deeper, deeper under it. And you start to see the construction of that difficulty in your heart and mind. And it leads to the possibility of release. Here's from Sandra, a woman that I worked with on a retreat who had a history of binge eating for much of her life. And eating disorders are very, very painful and very hard. She described years of struggling with the compulsion of wandering like a hungry ghost full of self-hatred. I believed that food had the unparalleled capacity to bring satisfaction and to free me from suffering. Time and again, I reach for the food looking for it to do its magic, only to have it turn on me, fail me, bring me untold physical and emotional suffering and shame. I became hypercritical of myself and my situation and despaired. Freedom has come as I've become more mindful of my body and the intense discomfort I was trying to escape from. I started to find that I could recover more quickly and less painfully from bouts of compulsive binging 
if I could stay even a little bit kind to my body and present with my pain and the stories I was telling. Instead of eating even more, just to try and avoid the effects of having eaten too much and the remorse of having done it again, I could actually watch myself start down that sad old path. And as the loving awareness grew, I realized, oh, I don't have to do this. And self-compassion could grow. I'm deeply grateful for the compassion that has rescued me from the realm of the hungry ghosts. And so you sort of hear her process in working through the suffering and the pain of her life. So investigating, are these stories true, you know, in the deepest way? Um, Where do we hold it in the body? How are we touching it? All the kind of discovery that comes. Recognize, accept, investigate, see the causes, the the history. And then the last is to not not identify. It's the shift of identity. I mean, who are you really? And my friend Ramdas was teaching after he came back from being in India um, in his early years, calling himself Baba Ramdas, and he had beads and a beard and, you know, was teaching Hindu mantras and kind of like a guru. Um, And one woman sitting in the front raised her hand at one point and said, hey, Ramdas, you're teaching this Hindu stuff. Aren't you Jewish? Come on, you know. And he said, yes, as I am. He was bar mitzvahed. He went through all this as I did. And then he said, you know, he said, I love the Jewish tradition. The Hasidic masters are a lot like the great Zen masters, if you realize, read all those stories. And the Kabbalah is all this mystical teaching that's very much like the mystical teachings of India. And it's, he said, it's beautiful stuff. And he paused, but remember, I'm only Jewish on my parents' side. <laughs> Which was a very witty, as he was, comment. But also something quite true, that who you are is not limited by your parents or your conditioning or, for that matter, by your race or by your culture. Those are all a part of you in some way and they need to be respected or honored, but that's not who you really are. And you can take that as your identity, but you're also free to release it. And it's not just your pain then when you feel the pain that you have It's the pain of human incarnation. It goes from being my pain to the pain of the world. And you carry part of that. In meditation, there's something called the tears of the way, the tears of the Dharma, not because you feel impoverished or someone mistreated you or insulted you, but because your heart starts to open and you realize we all carry a certain measure of pain and a certain measure of beauty. And this is human life. And and so in your... You, you know, you recognize and accept and you look deeply and you realize you don't have to take it so personally. And it starts to liberate you in this profound way. It's like Ajahn Chah, we were out on the alms round one morning walking with our bowls through a village to get morning food. And he saw there was a big boulder in the field nearby, like Spirit Rock. And he said to us, is that boulder heavy? And we said, yes, Master. And he smiled and he said, not if you don't pick it up. (laughs) And he was really pointing to how we take things so personally and then identify with them and believe that that's who we are. Um, 
Yeah, I have this cartoon of two generals striding down the halls of the Pentagon with all their medals, and one is looking at the other and saying, it really shook me, I can tell you. I dreamed the meek inherited the earth, you know. And so we have all these identities of our roles and who we think we are and so forth. And they're useful. They need to be honored. But they're really tentative. And who we are, and we'll get more to that as we go on in the afternoon, is not our body or our feelings or our conditioning. You are the spirit that was born into your body from the very beginning and that will leave your body when you die. You are consciousness itself. We'll we'll kind of talk more about that. Um, But all of a sudden you begin to realize in this way that um, it's possible not to be so caught up even in your own problems and not not to take them quite so personally and not to speak of that, the global problems. So that Gary Snyder who's, you know, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, Zen master, um, now in his 80s, was interviewed by a colleague here, Wes Nisker, a few years ago, and said, Gary, you know, you have um, been one of the great environmentalists of the last 50 years. You know, almost 50 years ago, or whatever, you published Earth Household and all of these teachings about bioregionalism and about our concern for the environment. And now you see, you know, global warming, climate change, rising oceans, loss of species. What message do you have for us? And Gary sat back and he said, don't feel guilty. He said, if you feel guilty, you're just going to add to the suffering. That's part of what made it. Do you think, you know, that guilt is going to help us? It's just going to create more conflict. He said, if you, if you want to save it, don't save it out of guilt or out of duty. He said, save it because you love it. And that's really the only power, the only force that's going to change the world is love. The love that knows that it's not just those animals or those trees or that environment. It's our life. The air that you're breathing today you know, is also the air of the fires of Napa and Mendocino and Sonoma. And it's also the air that dusted Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa as it came to us over the Pacific, being interbreathed with the badgers that live on this land and the deer, you know, and the turkey vultures and the turkeys. But it also dusted Fukushima nuclear reactor, reactor before it came into your lungs, didn't it? Some of it. This is us. This is our body. And if you save it, you don't say, oh, my poor foot, maybe I should help it, you know. Um, Should I? Is it worthy? Whatever. I'm busy doing other things. If it hurts, it's a part of you and you tend it. You are part of life itself. And so to not identify allows you to shift from taking things personally and to see we're part of the, the dance, the tainted glory of humanity in some way. And when we don't take it personally, you know, there are both the tears of the way for all who struggle and the unbearable beauty and the love that comes, the tenderness that comes when you feel yourself um, connected with life. And then your problems become more manageable because they are not layered with your self-judgment and your self-pity and your struggles and so forth. Okay, I accept, I recognize, I accept him. 
I see that they come in part from this conditioning or these circumstances. Underneath are these feelings, you know, and it's possible to address them and hold them in an entirely different way. Does this make sense to you? So this is kind of a practical application in Buddhist psychology of these very things we've been working with, of mindfulness and compassion and loving awareness in in difficulties. Looking for one more story to tell before we break for lunch. This is from Fran Peavy, who was a worldwide anti-nuclear activist, among many things, and a poet. She writes, One day I was walking through the Stanford University campus with a friend, when I saw a crowd of people with cameras and video equipment on a little hillside. They were clustered around a pair of chimpanzees, a male running loose, and a female on a light chain about 20 feet long. Turned out the male was from one of the kind of amusement park zoos around, and the female was being studied for something at Stanford. And the who I thought were spectators were actually the scientists and publicity people trying to get them to mate. The male was eager. You know how they can be. He grunted and grabbed the female's chain and tugged. She whimpered and backed away, not into it. He pulled again. She pulled back. Watching the chimp's faces, I began to feel sympathy for the female. Suddenly the female chimp yanked her chain out of the male's grasp, and to my amazement she walked through the crowd straight over to me and took my hand. Then she led me across the circle to the only other two women in the crowd and she joined hands with them and the four of us stood in a circle. I remember the feeling of that rough palm against mine. The little chimp had recognized us and reached out across all the years of evolution to form her own women's support group. (laughs) We are connected, you know. This is really true. I was listening to the Jane Goodall yesterday on... uh, Science Friday or two days ago, whenever it was yesterday, you know, and it was so moving to hear her, both the description of her work, but also the kind of love she has, not just for the chimps, but for the wildness of the world and what it means for us to tend our own wildness and our own world. Um, And this story really speaks of that, that deep and loving connection that grows from mindfulness. It grows from loving awareness. It grows from uh, the compassion and loving kindness training we've been working with. 
and with our capacity to be more and more fully present so that we can be with a person with their measure of pain and their incredible beauty, you know, and not be not drown in their pain, to actually be able to tolerate it with them so that they can find a way to tolerate it. And to see the beauty behind all of that and say, this is who you are. This is really what's possible for you. Um, so this is a lot of um, teachings and little bits of meditation and training, kind of opening one part of the treasure chest of Buddhist psychology and Buddhist teachings. I hope you find it to be um, useful, maybe inspiring, or things to reflect on and carry. It's now about 12.30. We will take an hour for lunch. I think normally I would say longer, you know, go for walks and things, but it's still not as bad as it was, but it's still kind of smoky out there. Um, so you're welcome to eat your lunch here or go upstairs and eat your lunch. And we'll ring the bell in about an hour. Does that seem like enough for you? And we'll continue. And um, yes, you're welcome to talk um, during lunchtime as well.
Inside the prison gates At the borderline Be free in my heart I do believe we shall be we shall be free
Solo quiero tener el mundo protegido aquí. Ay, 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 ay. Protegido aquí, aquí. Te salvará el silencio, oh, será para mí. Yo solo quiero abrigar al mundo en mí, abrigar el mundo en mí.
These are the ancient teachings of loving kindness. Even as a mother protects with her life her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, upward to the skies and downward to the depths. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, the great and the mighty, seen and unseen, the male and female, may they all be at ease. The young and old, the beings of the earth and the air and the waters, living near and far away, may all beings be at ease. May they all be happy. search the whole tenfold universe and not find a single being more worthy of love than the one listening to these words right now, yourself. May all beings be held in mercy and tender compassion. May all beings be happy and live with ease. young and old, may all beings be free. And let the great heart of loving kindness in you blossom to hold all beings everywhere. Know this truth, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. This is the great heart of loving kindness, the sublime abiding.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.